I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 21. Mark 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And we've begun to look at this glorious Gospel of Mark, the briefest Gospel, and the first, if you like, Christian tract to be issued. Now, uh, we've studied the call of the initial disciples, the three calls, indeed, before finally they gave up everything for Christ and followed him utterly and completely. And now they come to Capernaum, which Christ was to make his headquarters, as it were, for the Galilean ministry. And in due course, they'll come to Peter's house. He has moved there from the town of his birth, has a place in Capernaum, probably a relatively humble place. And we look, as we begin our thinking in verse 21, they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day, entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. He's going to be teaching repentance and remission of sin. He will expound the scripture and unfold it to them, and he will do so as one. Well, he was the author of scripture, and, of course, knew it through and through. And he expounds it in such a way as they had never heard before. But I want to come down to this 23rd verse. And my first heading will be Capernaum, a city of nominals. A city of nominal believers, nominal worshippers scrupulous in following their Jewish worship, but with no life in the soul. No doubt there were a minority, a number of people who earnestly believed and followed after God, but mostly they were to be one of the three condemned unrepentant cities that rejected the miracles and the works of Christ. And here in verse 23, there was in their synagogue, and this is the first Sabbath, a man with an unclean spirit. He was demonized. And the interesting thing is he cried out, saying, verse 24, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, there's no doubt that this demonized man, it was the demon that spoke. And he spoke of the destruction of demons. And yet, in a way, that demon did not intend, and in a way, the demonized man would never have grasped he spoke for virtually everyone in that synagogue. 
They were not demon-possessed, but he speaks for them all. And this was to be the outcome at Capernaum. It was almost as though they all said with him, What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. They were to say, he must be divine. He must be from God when they saw his healings and his miracles. They kind of believed and assented to him. But they never received him. And they never repented of their sin. And they never listened to his message. Repentance and conversion. So that demonized man, curiously, yet truly, spoke for them all. It was the voice of all Capernaum, apart from perhaps just a few. And verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And with a terrible cry and a great convulsion, the demon came out in verse 26. And look at the response of the people. Though they were to be unrepentant, as we'll see in due course, they were all amazed, verse 27. Insomuch they questioned among themselves, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with what authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits? And they do obey him. And his fame spread, and they proceeded to bring out of every home people who were sick or possessed and bring them to the door of that synagogue and ultimately to the house where Christ went for healing. And we'll see the record of that. So they all believed in him as a healer from God, as one with divine authority. But believing doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. Acceptance of the doctrine that Christ was the Son of God and the Saviour of the world, I believe that, doesn't necessarily lead to repentance and conversion and new life and heaven and walking with God. And perhaps we have friends here who come week after week and you come because you believe in the Christian faith and the Christian message and you assent to the person of Christ. But perhaps like the population of Capernaum, that largely fishing town on the north coast of Galilee, and yet rich town because so many tradespeople passed through it, was a place of thriving trade. But the people never repented, and they never turned, and they are to be condemned. Christ will ultimately say to them, along with two other cities, that if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Gentile Sodom years before, they would have repented and totally and sincerely and utterly. But the same, these great miracles were done in Capernaum 
and they would not repent. And Christ said, it will be harder in the day of judgment for you than for Sodom. And so it is here. But I was in the tabernacle. I sat in the gallery or downstairs, week after week, and I believed, but never repented, and never yielded, and were never converted. So Capernaum, the city of nominals, and that's what we're reading about at the beginning of the ministry of Christ. Look at these words here. I go on, I'm going to come back to Simon's wife's mother, but uh, verse 32, at even, this is the evening of that same Sabbath, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together. There were about 2,000 inhabitants of Capernaum plus tradesmen. And verse 34, and he healed many. Yes, but Luke is very specific. He healed all. No one was unhealed. There was not one sick or demonized person left unhealed in Capernaum at the end of that Sabbath. That is astonishing. And he healed many, all, that were sick of diverse diseases, the most dramatic healings, and cast out many devils. That was a great sign. Before the coming of Christ, there seems to have been a sudden and a marked upsurge in demon possession. I won't go into that right now, but one of the highlights of the compassionate ministry of Christ was the casting out of demons. And he announced to the crowds that this was a special sign of his divinity, of his messianic power. If I, with the finger of God, he said, cast out demons, it was one of the messianic signs that he, as he alone could do, would cast out demons. And after the ministry of Christ, there was virtually no more possession at all among the Jews. Demon possession, subsequently and today, can only happen to people who are deeply and voluntarily immersed in some extreme cult activities and play with the powers of darkness and invite such a terrible thing to happen to them. But involuntarily possession by demons was ended with the ministry of Christ. It's one of the messianic signs. But here is the first demon-possessed person in Capernaum to be healed. And in verse 33-34, we're looking at how he healed very many. Well, going back to the healing of the demonized man, verse 26, when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him, and they were all amazed. 
Now, I want to spend a little while before we proceed with this, establishing and proving to you something of enormous importance, and that is that the miracles of Christ were not only signs of his divinity, not only evidences of his great compassion and mercy, but they were also pictures, we often say this, pictures of his saving work. The physical miracles pictured what Christ does in the souls of those who were converted and saved. Now, there are many people who don't understand this and say, well, yes, I can understand that parables have a message. That's what they were for. But miracles, that if Christ literally performed a miracle, it also has features that parallel personal conversion, repentance and faith, and newness of life. Yes, but that's a fact. The miracles all teach. Now, for those of you who are older, who uh, studied uh, Chaucer at school and the Canterbury Tales, you may have studied the last of the Canterbury Tales, the Parson's Tale. Chaucer was quite remarkable in his sympathy for the Lollards. In the 14th century there, there was Wycliffe ministering. It was the Church of Rome with all its superstition and its false doctrine and its nonsense. And there was at the same time Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, teaching the pure gospel, justification by faith alone, and sending out his poor preachers, most of whom would travel through the land, some would settle in a particular place and be an independent preacher and preach the gospel. And Chaucer in his Canterbury Tales and his Parsons Tale depicts and pictures, really, a Lollard, a Wycliffe, poor preacher, dedicated to the gospel, working in a town. And he contrasts him with all the criticisms he's made in the Canterbury Tales of the Church of Rome. And he speaks of him as being upright and devoted and dedicated. And he utters these words of the, uh, uh, in the Parsons' Tale of the Wycliffe. He doesn't name him as a Wycliffeite or as a Lollard, but he utters these words. First he wrought and afterwards he taught. So the good preacher, the poor preacher, by his works showed Christ. He was consistent, unlike the Church of Rome and its priests and its monks. And so he taught the gospel. But the Puritans loved that statement, the later Puritans, and they turned it round, and they would often quote it, not of the preacher, but of Christ. And they bridged it a little, and it became a Puritan epithet, speaking of Christ. So as he wrought, so he 
taught and they applied it to the parables. As he worked the miracles, so he was teaching through them the gospel. Now, how do we prove that? There are many ways to do it, and I'm going to take you to just one or two passages because if we can print this on our minds, it's very precious. The miracles teach the gospel. And I turn you first to connection number one, and it'll be in Mark's gospel here, chapter two, and I read verses three to five. This won't take long. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, you know this event, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now this is obvious, that this miracle is going to depict the forgiveness of sin and the making whole of the soul. Because in this case, the Lord actually says it. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And then if I read from verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? Well, now that's a very clear connection. The miracle parallels and corresponds with the work of forgiveness and renewal. So the parable, the, the miracle, teaches conversion. It's a picture of repentance and forgiveness and conversion. And then I take you on to Mark 5, very briefly. We'll be quite speedy with these. It's so important. And I read verse 25 of Mark 5. A certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and Christ, knowing that blessing had gone out of him, he said at the end of verse 30, Who touched my clothes? But the woman came and told him what she'd done, verse 33. And in verse 34, Christ says to her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and behold of thy plague. So there Christ makes it clear that her touch 
was a demonstration and a picture of faith and her being made whole was the consequence. And many of the miracles of Christ, the word faith is brought in to show that parallel. And you see it there. Now I'm going to turn you to the Gospel of John for a few moments. And this is chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And I read verses 1 to 6. It is so important to prove these things. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And he went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And a great company came to him, verse 5. And he says to Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? There were 5,000 men, and probably as many women and children, at least 5,000 people. Verse 6, And this he said to prove Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Then I read verse 11, Because loaves and fishes have been produced, five loaves and two fishes, Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, the whole multitude and crowd, the feeding of the 5,000 plus people. But then... Go to the following uh, passage in verse 48 of that chapter 6. And almost immediately afterwards, there had been a long argument with the uh, Pharisees who were observers of these things. Almost immediately afterwards, Christ says this, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Now, yes, they'd just been talking about Moses and the bread from heaven, but immediately this follows the feeding of the 5,000. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, but I am the true bread who says to them. And you can read down to verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give, and so on. So there's the close connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and that great I am statement, I am the bread of life. And then I turn to John's Gospel and chapter 8. And look at this. You have the same connection. Verses 12 to 13. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As spoken in the temple, under the great candelabra, 
I am the light of the world. And then there is a great debate between him and the Pharisees. Who art thou? And so on. And it's at the conclusion of this debate where he had announced himself, I am the light of the world, that you get chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by, he left the temple, his great proclamation of light of the world, the challenge of the Pharisees. He saw a man which was blind from his birth, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Listen to these significant words. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I am the light of the world, hangs over this passage. I must work the works of him that sent me. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way and washed and came seeing. And this leads immediately to a furious response from the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the appointment of a Sanhedrin inquiry and interrogation of the man. How did you come to receive your sight? Deny that it was Jesus of Nazareth that did it. And they try to solicit his cooperation in denying Christ and fail. I am the light of the world. The dramatic healing of the blind man known to everyone as a beggar at the temple portals and the furious attempts of the clergy of the day to unwind this confirmation of the statement, I am the light of the world by the miracle of sight to the blind. The two are inextricably connected. The restoration of sight to the blind man was a picture of how Christ, as the light of the world, gives lights to the soul and saves the seeking sinner. The two are inevitably welded together in the narrative. And we could go to even further statements without tiring you. I go to John chapter 11 and verse 21 and here we read this then said Martha unto Jesus Lord if thou hadst been here my brother Lazarus had not died but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God God will give it thee Jesus saith unto her Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And so the passage proceeds. And we could go to verse 41 to see the connection. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Verse 43, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Now that is so powerfully linked to I am the resurrection and the life, he that believeth in me. You can see that the miracle is the work of Christ hand in hand with the teaching of Christ about redemption and new life in Christ. The miracles teach the doctrine. They are full of parallels of salvation. I'll give you one last one, if I may. And this is back in Matthew chapter 8. And it is a parallel passage to what we read about in Mark 1. I read Matthew 8 verse 16. Listen to this. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That's parallel to Mark chapter 1. But listen to this, which Matthew adds, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, saying, and this is Isaiah chapter 53, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Isn't that amazing? Why does Matthew, speaking under inspiration, quote Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy of what Christ would do on Calvary's cross when he bore, would bear away the sins of all his people so that they could be healed from sin and saved eternally. Why does he quote that in connection with a miracle? The miracle of healing in Capernaum when the people were at the door there and all who were possessed had the demons cast out and all who suffered from various illnesses were wonderfully healed is said to be a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But surely it isn't. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53 took place on the cross of Calvary when Christ died for our sins. What is Matthew doing? But he's speaking under inspiration, saying that the miracle was a fulfillment. Well, yes, it was. The miracle wasn't the 
ultimate fulfillment, but the miracle was in itself a picture of Christ's redeeming work. The casting out of demons and the healing of the sick paralleled what Christ would purchase for souls when he suffered and died on Calvary. So the connection is there. Matthew may just as well be saying to us, when you hear about these healings, think of their message. They are not only compassionate, miraculous healings, but they are an exposition of how Christ will set free souls and convert men and women through his shed blood and his atoning death. The connection is made solidly between the two things. And in ever so many similar passages I could bring before you to demonstrate and show that all the miracles picture the way of salvation. It is precious. We never let it go. Our time is out. I'll give one example in closing. It's down here in verse 29 of Mark chapter 1. With this we come to conclusion. Forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon had bought a house, maybe a little more than a shack, a fisherman's shack, who knows? Might have been a little better than that. He seems to have co-owned it or shared it with Andrew, his brother. They entered into the house of Simon and Andrew, comma, accompanied by James and John. It wasn't their house, but the four together were with Christ in the party. Verse 30, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. The Greek word translated anon is at once, immediately, they tell him of her. It's, the, it's uppermost in their minds. Luke, the physician, in his gospel, goes out of his way to say it was a great fever, using a very strong word. In other words, we may take it that Peter's wife's mother was dying. She had a fever. The word fever is taken from the Greek for burning. It was a burning fever. Maybe she was delirious. She was bedridden and sick. And they take Christ into the house and the first matter of concern is Simon's wife's mother. And the other Gospels put it even more strongly. They besought Christ for her. They pleaded with him for her life and her recovery. 
And he came and took her by the hand, touched her, says Luke. He also, says Luke, addressed the fever and lifted her up. And immediately that burning fever left her. And she was so well that she proceeded to prepare a meal for them and busy herself as though she had never been sick. And that event, which was for the disciples, the four initial disciples, and of course Simon's wife's mother and anyone else who may have been in the house, that event was not only to teach the divinity of Christ and the compassion of Christ, but it was a picture of the way of salvation. Well, this is Capernaum, the unrepentant city. Here's a picture of salvation. If we're unsaved, we're burning. Perhaps you're burning with frustration in life. Perhaps you're burning with pride. You're the center of your life and pride rules you. Perhaps you're burning with covetousness and desire. I want so many things. I want this. I want that. I'll spend all my effort to get it. That and that alone will make me happy. Perhaps you're burning with ambition. Burning. Fatally burning. Burning up in this life. You're bedridden. Nothing for God. No activity toward him. No real heartfelt worship. No prayer. No service. No study of him. But Christ is here. And they beseech him. And he reaches out to her and touches her. He identifies with her. If we come to him, he's identified with us. He's came, come into this world. He's gone to Calvary's cross. There he called out to his father, put the sin of this man and this woman upon me and I will suffer it in their place. I will suffer their punishment. There's no more wonderful identification than that. Symbolized here by the touch of Christ. And he takes her by the hand and raises her up. What a picture of conversion. I'm raised up to newness of life. I find my heart filled with love for God. I have a new nature and I now know him and walk with him. From burning in this world to love for Christ and walking with him. 
So the first thing that happens in the house of Peter and Andrew is a demonstration of the saving power of Christ. That's what we need, friends. Don't be a dweller in Capernaum. You worship, you kind of believe, you've never repented, never been cured of the burning, never been given life. That's what this gospel will be all about. And that's all we can deal with this morning. Let's make our closing hymn our prayer. It's hymn number 387. Hymn number 387. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand.